This is Tectonic, a weekly talk show revolving around the seismic shifts in technology, culture, and the digital age. This is episode number 51. I am Joe Darnell, and with me is our special guest this week, Mr. Daniel Jalkos. Good afternoon, Daniel. Good afternoon to you, Joe. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for joining me. It's been a long time in the making because I think it was in, I don't know, some part back there in 2013, I first heard your voice on an interview episode of the other show called Command Space with Mike Hurley. I don't know why, but it has struck a chord with me and I've remembered it in the back of my mind ever since I remembered that episode. And then one day I discovered you on Twitter and I was like, oh yeah, I liked that episode. He was on that show. And before I realized, Daniel, that you have your own shows, I just thought, ah, that guy, he's got to be more involved in the podcast space. <laughs> so I invited you to be back on my show thinking that there hadn't been any follow-up to Command Space in uh, these two, two and a half years. So then I discover you're all over the internet. You're all over <laughs> Twitter. You're all over podcasting. So I'm, I'm really glad that I could land some time with you. Our schedules conflict a lot. Yeah, well, uh, right. We had a couple weeks there, even after all that, where we were like, oh, actually, turns out uh, wasn't going to work out. But uh, yeah, finally got it lined up here. I'm sitting in uh, Boston with our surprise early April snowstorm uh snow all around me and just trying to keep cozy here in my home office so it's such an unusual season if you're listening to this in the future yeah i'm here in metro atlanta and it was in the low 40s this morning this is unheard of yeah it's not hot it's not hot atlanta today huh not a, no not in the, at all but usually it is by now where house is like covered in carpenter bees and uh, fire ants yeah <laughs> but i think that this cold spell has been uh <laughs> controlling the the plague that's well that's one good thing <laughs> it's a good side effect i wanted to discuss a number of things with you daniel because you used to work at apple you got involved in web develop, or sorry, not web development. You got to just yeah, bite your tongue. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> A long time ago, yep. long before the web, you were involved in the Apple community. Yes. And you started at Apple at a very early age as a contractor. Then one day you got the courage to leave Apple, go to school and study music, mm -hmm. which is fascinating to me. My father-in-law studied music as well. Then he went into the Navy. Mm. Go figure. Yeah. And then you went from music studies into independent app development, and you didn't just build something from scratch. You, as a young developer, younger developer, you took an alternative approach, and you bought someone else's app, and you've been developing it ever since. Mm-hmm. And then one of the things that still strikes me as unique about you compared to the others that are building Mac apps today is that you haven't been fighting to compete in the iOS space alongside of the Mac space. Yeah. And most of your development contributions have been for the Mac. I want to ask you, what is your standard for what you're going to work on, why you've chosen to focus on the Mac technology, and to, well, I mean, whether it was uh, intentional or not, to hold off on the uh, mobile development. Have you worked on mobile things and just uh, not revealed them yet? Uh, no, not really. I mean, well, to some extent, I first of all, I have one shipping iOS app, and it's called Swish, and it's a noisemaker static 
visuals generator. I'm going to look it up right now on my phone. So downloading it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like one of the simplest. Well, here's the thing. Here's what dis- distinguishes it from everything else. And probably why it doesn't sell super well is it has very few features. I actually was inspired to make this app. It was originally called Shush. I was inspired to make this app in 2008. So going back in history now, you can recall the first iPhones came out in 2007. And then in 2008, we got the developer SDK where you could legitimately make apps. And about that time, I had my first, you know, my wife had our first uh, son. We were looking at this um, uh, this book and this whole sort of philosophy about you know making kids' babies feel more comfortable called The Happiest Baby on the Block, centered around you know, basically actions you could take as a parent to make the baby feel like it's sort of still in the comfort of the womb. And one of those things was having a kind of static noise that simulates the sound of being in the womb. And I actually put off getting an iPhone until they supported developer um, SDK. For somebody who doesn't do almost any mobile development, I was actually, you know, I shipped an app in I guess, within probably the first six months of, of the iOS app store. That's the only one I've shipped so far. And over the years, I think I've, uh, I've sort of swung on the pendulum away from and towards seeing more iOS development as an urgency versus not. Yes, there's an element of having done stuff and not shipped it, but having completed stuff and not shipped it, no. But a lot of my stuff is sort of ready in some fundamental ways to, to move towards iOS. That's of course still leaves a lot of work on the table to to finish it up and make it into a shippable product. I heard on your show recently that you've been studying Swift and you're making that transition. Yes. The, just everything about you is different from so many other developers I know. <laughs> that you that you're engaging with Swift and you're not engaging with iOS, that you're concentrating on the Mac. And that you continue to, to build upon some tried and true like things that have worked for you. Yeah. Whereas it, seem, it seems like a lot of the people that I know in the development community, in our creative writing and productivity culture, they got started around the time of the iPhone, and ever since they've they've pursued they've had many pursuits. Mm-hmm. But you've been working on Mars Edit um, with your company Red Sweater now for more than ten years, right? Almost ten years since I acquired it. It's uh, been nine years, I think, since I acquired it. But my company, um, you know, you mentioned that I acquired Mars Edit. I also acquired this um, far less well-selling app, but I still sell it. It's a a crossword app for the Mac called Black Ink. And then before that, though, those, those acquisitions both happened in 2007. Before that, since, I don't even know if I can remember exactly some of these ship dates, but I had a couple other apps for sale, mm. including stuff I still sell today. Um, Fast Scripts is a kind of Apple script scripting menu bar utility for the Mac. And that's been, just came up today. I was looking it up because um, I was thinking about upgrade pricing and how I've never charged for an upgrade on that app. I know that I at least sold copies of it as far back as 2003, which is uh, getting back there. And then I have another app called Clarion, which is a music interval study app, which goes back to, you know, the pre-Mac OS X days in uh, System 7. Really? So I actually made that originally in Carbon before it was called Carbon, and then, you know, migrated it to Carbon and then migrated it to Cocoa. (laughs) 
So I have some experience making my own stuff. It just so happens that uh, the most successful product is the one that I acquired nine years ago. <laughs> and it's a, it's a much different app than it was nine years ago. But what was great about acquiring the app was I sometimes just sort of equate it to like a tag team wrestling match or something. <laughs> like, like it takes a lot of work to come up with an idea put all the original investment of experimenting with the idea, try out the different things, work out the bugs, come up with an, a user interface, uh, ship the first version, take the feedback, you know, come up with a way to sell it, come up with a way to collect the money, come up with a strategy for handling customer support, uh, come up with a marketing strategy of some kind, which is you know, obviously ranges from nothing to somewhat sophisticated, depending on the developer. And you do all that and you get 1.0 out the door and often there's not much energy left in the tank, no, not much gas in the tank rather. And what was kind of cool about the situation with Mars Edit is my friend Brent Simmons had developed it and actually spun it off from Net Newswire, which was, was and still is a popular Mac desktop newsreader. I, I think if, if he, that had been his focus and his passion to move forward with Mars Edit, he could have done a great job with it. But... It was a situation where I think it worked well for me because I came into it with fr fresh energy. Mm. I, so I often think back, like, how much did my own separate apps, things like Fast Scripts, you know, I have some other apps that I shipped. Uh, how much did I sort of just get burned out, get that like 1.0 shipping fatigue? Right. With Mars Edit. And with Mars Edit, what was kind of cool was I came into it with not only fresh energy, but coming into a sort of a, um, a scene where it wasn't like it was making tons of money or had a, had a huge number of customers, but it was an established product and it had passionate users. So I was able to come in and say like, oh, this is cool. This, this app is something that people already know about. And that was to Brent's credit. He had managed to sort of make it not a household name, but like a, a very geeky household name. <laughs> yes. Right. So it wasn't, you know, to this day, um, nine years later now, I often have to explain what Mars Edit is to people. But almost as often, like there's a 50-50 chance that people will be like, oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Or, oh, yeah, I use that. That was kind of a cool scene to be able to kind of step into and say, not all, it's not all like your own identity invested into the app, like there's something a little bit psychological about it, I think, where it's when you spend all your time and effort making the 1.0 and you ship it, like that's putting yourself out there. Hmm. And there's something about being able to come in as like the second caretaker of the app where it's like, sure, some things you, you look at and you say, ah, why, why did they ever do that? And some things you look at and say, wow, that's great the way they did that. I never would have thought of that. But Maybe most importantly, you don't look at any of it with this sense of this represents me. And I think that's kind of the same value you get out of like having somebody else um, review your manuscript or something or the, the same way that if you write something and you put it aside and you come back a year later, you can kind of do a better job being removed from it. And I was definitely removed from Mars Edit. So Kind of a long tangent I took us on there, but uh, sometimes people I think have sort of insinuated that I didn't really make Mars Edit, right? Because I acquired it and then it came into my hands and it was fully formed. Of course, I've spent nine years like evolving it. And I think my pushback against that idea that I didn't make it is, um, wow, I think that going back to that tag team wrestler kind of metaphor, like, well, we, we did something that 
would be really hard for one person to do on their own because it's this idea of like one person with a bunch of energy putting a bunch of time in and then being kind of pooped out on it. And then <laughs> it's like the next person with a bunch of energy comes in and it doesn't work unless both of the people in that scenario are sort of motivated to put a lot into it. And that was the lucky kind of break I think we had with Mars Edit. And a lot of people know that often when something gets sold, like it's kind of like the the death knell ringing for the for the product. Like often when things get sold, they don't they don't do well. Seems like it's the more recent history that comes to mind when you point that out because, you know, Google buys something and then they eventually abandon it and Dropbox buys something and eventually they abandon yep. it. Mm -hmm. But those things have happened since the beginning of the iPhone, whereas I, I really wasn't that attuned to what was happening to the developer community in the 90s and the early part of the century, where the internet was alive and strong, but not yeah. as public facing and not as uh, readily available to the enthusiasts, maybe it's more so to the developer community. Mm -hmm. So other developers at the time that you were picking up Mars Edit may have had that careful observation that Mars Edit's days are probably numbered, but I don't think that the public would have probably been so much aware of it at the time. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I'm having trouble pulling up examples from you know way back in, in the old days. But, but it's certainly something we know now. Yeah, mm -hmm. you can expect it to die <laughs> in no time at all. Right. If 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 Mars Edit is acquired by you the next two years, we know it's doomed. <laughs> if it's acquired from you, <laughs> well, may, you know, maybe. I mean, it, and it just comes down to whether you get this unlucky or this uh, this lucky break, and it was you know not entirely luck in this case because Brent sold it to me you know, through the company that he was working for at the time, um, he sold it to me, I think knowing that it was a better than a better than average odds that it was going to be in good hands. And it, but it just comes down to like how passionate is the buyer actually about the product. And when you look at a big company like Dropbox or Google, unless they have like a corporate strategy, that's very passionate about something that only that acquisition can provide then it doesn't look too good. Like a great example, I think, comes to mind of an acquisition that thrived is Apple's acquisition of Siri. Hmm. And they even kept the name, right. you know? And it was a third-party app, for those who don't know or don't remember. It was called Iris, right? I don't think so. I think it was called Siri. Huh. Let me look at that. Yeah, it was called Siri, and it was, it was um, telling that Apple said, we'll buy that and we'll keep the name kind of just like a cool technology demo in my mind when it was out as a third-party app. One of those things where it gets acquired and people were like, oh, well, there goes Siri. And the next thing you know, there's like Siri commercials. And it's like, well, right. well it's better than ever. Uh, so I think that's an example where it lined up perfectly with what Apple wanted to do. And But then other stuff, like Lala was a famous, uh, relatively famous music service that Apple acquired had a lot of passionate users, but I don't think Apple was one of them because it never really went anywhere, obviously, publicly. So you just never know. It's a crapshoot to some extent. But when it works out, I think it can really it can really benefit both parties really well because of that energy thing and just because having different attitudes and perspectives looking at the app can uh, can help it. Like probably Apple has taken Siri to places that the original developers couldn't have dreamed would have happened. Right, just getting access to the things under the hood inside of the system level would make a yeah. world of difference.
Uh-huh. I love Siri today. I, I And I imagine using the original app I did pick up after I heard about them being acquired, I would check it out and think to myself, yeah, this I can see potential here, but this is not an app that I would use in its current state. That was on the iOS or iPhone 4, I believe. Wow. Yeah. Time has flown by. I think so. Well, okay, well, we have an idea then of why you acquired Mars Edit. Then why have you stuck to the Mac platform all these years? And how close have you got to developing an iOS version and backed away? For Mars Edit, um, I have flirted pretty closely with some stuff that at least uses code from Mars Edit. Um, it's funny, I had a lot of really, really like kind of like aspirational app ideas kind of early on. Yeah, back in 2013 on the interview with Mike, yeah. you mentioned at the time that you were seriously looking into it. Yeah. And I, I wanted to just offer a mini follow-up and say, well, how did things change? Yeah, well, so first of all, let me just say, um, you know, I got far enough along. I was really thinking at the time, like, I remember when the phone was announced and I immediately, my mind immediately jumped to this idea that, okay, wouldn't it be cool? You're walking down the street, you have your phone, take a picture, you put a cute little frame around it or something and you publish it to the web and you do it all while you're just walking and... <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was like before Instagram and before, you know, I mean, it's obvious. It's an obvious idea. A lot of people probably had it, but I sort of followed up on it for a while. And then I was like, it eh, lost priority for me. Um, I actually commissioned, I spent about $4,000 at the time on custom art for frames and stuff. My, my whole angle was where, whereas Instagram went with the like um, filters approach, my whole idea was... Um, custom frames like oh yeah yes. so like i had like um this was back when uh, skeuomorphism was still in vogue <laughs> that's right and uh it's funny i have a bunch of old posts like test posts on my uh one of my blogs that's like a bunch of pictures from those that era where i was just testing out my app and uh, like a wedding style kind of like sophisticated frame but then i had um like a party like birthday party frame Oh, so they would have themes. Yeah, they have themes. Like a Western theme. Yeah, I had a, I, exactly. Oh, okay, nice. I, had a, um, I had like the classic sepia tone uh, Western wanted frame. I was just posting these on my blog and people were like, what are you using to post those? I'm like, oh, it's my app that I'm working on. So it got pretty far along. And as I recall, I even submitted it at one point to the app store in its sort of like less than perfected state. And I don't remember why I never completely pulled the trigger. Um, I think there were some bugs I thought that weren't worth shipping with. Um, but also the time, uh, the tide had turned yeah. because uh, the kind of things that people were wanting to do with their photos, there's been all sorts of things that people wanted to do with their phones. But at the time we didn't exactly know what to make of the screen real estate. Yeah. But I'm picturing as a, a designer, uh, you know, I have this designer background and I'm thinking the one thing you don't want to do is to invent more flourishes outside of the picture because the screen real estate on a phone is already so small. Yeah. So one, so what my, my objection, if I came across your app in the store would be, well, that's just going to shrink the picture down that much more on my itty-bitty device. I don't know if I want that. Like, like yeah, well, it's already hard enough to see my picture. Well, a slight distinction is the, I say frames, but they were really like overlays. So it would, it would be more like, I mean, yeah, it would take away some of the picture, but it wasn't like um, 
the whole picture went into the frame. It was more like you would position it and rotate it within this uh, overlay, and then and then and then uh, upload the re- the result. I'll have to I'll have to after the show I'll link you to some uh, examples. But you're right. I mean, it was but but at the same time, it was like um, the kind of thing that nobody could do before. Like you wouldn't have the time or inclination to take a picture and then later like load it up into some casual framing kind of software and then publish it. And it was kind of just the idea was to be able to give somebody a way to say like, here I am at my son's soccer game. Hmm. And it was gimmicky, but it was like you said, it was gimmicky in the right way for the skeuomorphism at the time, maybe. Right. And it was also that kind of thing was very trendy for blogs. And so were you thinking that people would publish this to a unique blog standard? Um, no, yeah, well, that's the thing is that's where uh, I was alluding to. It actually used all of my MarsEdit um, blog publishing infrastructure. So, oh, okay, yeah, I could see where that was going then. Yeah, so it was basically um, a photo-centric blogging app. So it would be like Tumblr with a desktop platform yeah. <laughs> back in the yeah the early years. That, interesting. But it was from, I mean, it was only iOS. So it was an iOS app. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I can see that. But I think that if, if you had gone th- that way, the, the future would have been that these features would have got back to the Mac. Yes. By now, it'd be like Tumblr off of a, de- a uh, native app platform. Right. So that was one like pretty big, extensive foray into mobile that I abandoned. <laughs> um, and then uh, kind of another funny one was my, my crossword app, Black Ink. It's a weird one because it's hard to make money off of that app. Partly it's because I don't I don't market I don't put a lot of energy into it, but partly it's kind of just like a, a a niche audience to begin with, and I don't control the content. It's kind of a weird thing, but you know, um, I was very early into developing um, an iOS version of it huh. ahead of um, any of the other crossword apps that you see out there on on iOS today. I played some Sudoku on iOS. I could totally see where crosswords would work. Yeah, so um, I actually went pretty far down the road on that. And the funny thing is, technically, I shipped that, but I shipped it in a comical way because this was back in the days when um, on the on the App Store, I don't believe you had the option to say that something was um, ready to publish on the App Store, but didn't have a date to be released yet. Hmm. So I remember I uploaded it once because I needed to, um, I don't know what it was. I think I wanted to... Uh, I wanted to just like make sure they were going to approve something that I was planning to do. I can see, yeah. It's it's kind of like when you you're using your YouTube channel for the first time and you don't really know for sure, <laughs> right. and so you put a video up there, not because you're serious about leaving it there. Right. You're going to take it down as soon as you can, but you just want to know that this thing is working. Right. So I put up um, a version of my in development Black Ink app, and um, and I said something like, "Publish it in a year." and then a year later i am vacationing in england with limited cell coverage walking around the streets of brighton (laughs) and with my wife and all of a sudden i get this alert that says like your app black ink is now ready for sale And I was like, oh gosh. I was like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? So I, I remember I had to like stand on this corner, like lifting my cell phone into the air, trying to get a signal strong enough that I could remove from sale my app. So I got home. I got home from this trip and I was like, oh man, 
I hope not. I, it was one of the weirdest feelings as an iOS developer because I was saying, oh, man, I hope nobody bought that. <laughs> <laughs> and because, uh, you know, these days it's not that hard to achieve that. If you want no. nobody to buy right. something, it's, uh, it's pretty easy. I got home and I think this thing had only been for sale for like an hour, but this was the early days still. Right. I got home and I checked it out and it turned out I had made like 10, 10 sales. <laughs> and this was, oh, this is the other thing. I had set the price, um, I think to 1995. Oh, wow. I think my convoluted <laughs> thinking at the time was, I'm going to set this for not to sell, sell until a year, and I'm going to set it for 1995, so if it accidentally goes on the store, nobody will buy it. Nobody's <laughs> going to buy this. And I got like 10 sales, I think. <laughs> and so um, I was like, oh, well, I don't know who those people are. I can't reach them because of the limitations of the iOS app store. I can't like <laughs> proactively offer them a refund. Wow. Uh, I can't do anything for these people. I mean, the only thing I could do for them would have been just to drop everything and say, well, I guess I have to develop a full functional version of this app. Uh, yeah, and I, I could see the drive there. There's a couple of web products that I've put out there, and I've wanted to expand on them and to give them significant attention. And then I get feedback from some of the customers, and I'm like, I'm right there with you, but I just don't know that I'm committed yeah. to the project like that. <laughs> right. So the maybe the funniest aspect of this to me is 10 people in the world bought this thing on like the one day that it was for sale for on a lark for $20, some crosswords. Right. <laughs> right. And, and I mean, the limitations of it were like in, incredible. I think what, ha I think the app that I shipped came with like 10 crosswords and you couldn't download it anymore. And so it was like, these people paid like $20 for 10 crosswords. And, <laughs> oh, um, Daniel, that's a great story. <laughs> well, and then years later, I'm at this conference in Boston and um, a, a guy comes up to me. He says, hey, didn't, didn't you make black ink? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you do you own it? You you have a Mac. You know, you use it on the Mac. And he goes, No, I got it for the for the iPhone. <laughs> oh, do you still have and it there? <laughs> he was good natured about it because I think he sort of knew. Um, he, he knew a little bit about me at that point, I guess. Uh, but I I told him this story and I said, Do you want me to give you your money back? <laughs> yes. And he says, He says he says No, I'll just wait until you finish it. <laughs> so <laughs> that was about. Six years ago. This episode of Tectonic is brought to you by Focus App, the simplest way for anyone to write a task list, check it off, and focus better using the Pomodoro technique all at the same time. Start refining your productivity by visiting focusapp.io. Focus App has one of the most user-friendly interfaces that I've ever used, which makes it possible to plan, sync, and track my way through timed sessions of focused work and short breaks that remind me to get up from my desk and refresh myself. This helps me to stay alert throughout the day without an unhealthy dependency on caffeine. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing well, which FocusApp's implementation of the Pomodoro timer facilitates. The Pomodoro technique solves many issues for me, like my need to stay alert for long spells of concentrated work, and my effort to stay physically fit, even with a desk job. The five-minute breaks are a good time for me to do some push-ups and get a glass of water. And because FocusApp has support for notifications and sync across Mac, iOS, and watchOS, I can start focused time of work with my mouse, extend a timed session when I want to stay focused longer with my wrist, or take that break and extend it with a tap on my phone. FocusApp is as flexible as it is systematic. 
It takes all of the learning curve out of a complicated productivity methodology and leaves you with a streamlined tool that's beautifully designed. And if that wasn't enough in its favor, Focus App sports a notification center widget and Apple Watch complication. It's even available in your Mac's menu bar so that if you're not looking at the app elsewhere, you can start and stop timed work sessions and breaks like the minimalists do. You don't have to rely on the Mac app for a full feature set, but if you use the Mac app version, you'll have other bonus features like hotkeys and dark mode if you're like Batman and you like all your gear colored in shades of really dark gray. And if you want to know what you've got done today, you can view a list of all of your completed tasks and have some peace of mind that this productivity tool is indeed keeping you on track. Focus App starts at $6.99 for the iOS version, so download it today to show your support for Tectonic. My thanks to Focus App developers for supporting this show and keeping our mics on. To answer your, your story in the longest way possible, or answer your question rather, um, I have delved into um, mobile development mostly in those earlier years. I'm a little behind on iOS stuff these days. And um, the second, I think, sort of part of your question was why stick with the Mac and why sort of continue to not pursue mobile stuff. Part of that is uh, is inertia. Like when you've happened to have been a Mac developer who's been a Mac developer forever, mm-hmm. you know, you need something to push you out of that position. You need something to say. Being a Mac developer alone is not good enough anymore, or the allure of iOS is so great that you need to get over there, mm. or there's a lot of money to be made in iOS, or there's no money to be made in the Mac, and none of those things is true. Right. And in fact, I mean, uh, it's not su- it's not like super, it's not stupendously easy to make a living on the Mac with software, but if I had to make a guess, I would say it's easier than it is on iOS for the average person running their own software company. Mm. And that's the key. It's one of those ironies that iOS is a market with orders of magnitude, greater customer base. And yet, you know, I know people who have broken the code and make a great living on iOS, but there I know far fewer of them than I know on the Mac. And I don't think that's just familiarity. I think that's... um, Right, because even now, what most people hear about is the legends on iOS and that that store and that platform. And the comparisons to Android and the comparisons to the, the app market for Windows. And you don't hear a lot of people singing the praises of the Mac platform because we're not satisfied with the state of the Mac app store. But that doesn't really say a lot for whether or not it actually works. So it is interesting that you you can shed light on that. And, it, and I, I don't think you're crazy. I, I think you're doing something that does work and it makes complete sense to me. Yeah. Like a few years ago, I was using Final Cut 7 mm-hmm. and a lot of people balked. A lot of the professionals were very seriously distraught when Apple introduced Final Cut Pro 10. And there were droves of people that moved on to Adobe's Creative Suite and started using Adobe Premiere. And thankfully, Premiere actually felt a lot like Apple's previous generation video editor tools. So the people who wanted to make that switch were making the right choice. And a lot of people lost faith in Apple and what they were doing with uh, the Final Cut 10. But I think that 
perception started to matter more than reality because the tool was still very useful. And I saw a lot of professionals from day one pick up Final Cut 10 and use it since the beginning for real world work and make a living. Yeah. And then there were still people who were very content to stay on Final Cut 7. I believe even now, God bless them, but that are using Final Cut 7 to make their their films in a world where it is no longer supported and developed. They make it work. It, it they make a living. And so as long as it's working, why fix it? Yeah. And you just bring it to today, and maybe it doesn't work for everybody. We understand that everybody has a unique case. It's just, it is interesting to me that your case is one where the Mac app version is enough, and you're, you don't want to divide your attention with another platform and weaken what you already have going for the Mac version. Yeah, and I mean, to clarify, if I could snap my fingers and have the iOS version ready to go, marketable, I would love to have that. I mean, I would like... But seri- yeah, but seriously, that is the thing. It's it's not that easy. Right. Well, and in, and that's the other, the other component there is all of that skepticism about whether it's marketable. And there's some great examples of companies that defy the assumption that you have to charge rock bottom prices on iOS. I mean, the Omni Group is probably the like gold standard example and literal made out of literal gold because <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean more power to them but you know um i was i just checked in actually on the prices of um of omnifocus one of my and i think you mentioned uh before the before the show started that that's something you use as well uh, omnifocus mm-hmm. on ios the non-pro version is currently 40 dollars on ios and that's like wow more power to them. That's like, that's a place I'd, I wouldn't mind being in that position <laughs> on the iOS um, store. And I think that's them getting paid back dividends for their many, many years of um, investment. Yes. Yeah. And gaining a customer trust. And to some extent, uh, a company like Omni doesn't need software trials, for example, because they got customers who. We'll, have, we'll buy the app with high confidence that it's going to work the way they expect it to. Right. Well, one thing that they could definitely benefit from was the size of their loyal base yep. that go, goes and predates the Mac App Store and the iOS Store. So they yep. didn't have to make it in those stores. Their credibility preceded them. Yeah, their credibility actually predates OS X, which is something that very few unheard of OS yeah. X developers can say. Um but, I remember using OmniWeb, and that's like yeah. the first time I encountered them ages ago. Yeah. For any of those who don't know, OmniWeb was an alternative web browser. Yeah. And I liked it a lot. <laughs> I really did. But more so than the Firefox at the time, yep. whatever Firefox was called at the time. It may have been those Mozilla days. or something. Yeah. Yeah. They, you know, they still make a, a, the OmniWeb uh, app because, as I understand it, Ken Case from Omni still loves to use OmniWeb. And so I think he still develops it and maybe even just him personally, maybe some other people, but pretty sure it's a passion passion project still. I hadn't seen their icon. I don't know when they updated their icon, but now it matches the rest of the present Omni Group collection. It's pretty good. Oh, is it? Okay, good. Yeah, so... We'll have a link to this in the show notes. Yeah, it's a free browser for for folks who want to check out OmniWeb. Uh, I think... 
it's one of the oldest browsers in the world because it goes way back to Next. Uh, there's, a, there's a lesson here, I think, because this is from a company that was so invested in web technology and web browsing that they, at the time, years and years ago, had to like develop their own web rendering frameworks. They've evolved to a company that's very successful, which gives away its OmniWeb app as a free, unsupported app because they recognized that that was not where the money was after a while. You know, once it's like free Internet Explorer, free Mozilla, free Firefox, free Safari. And it's like, just because we may even still be the best in the world at this doesn't mean that's where the money is. So mm. something I think to be said there, like the Omni Group, I respect them a lot and I, I like them a lot too. I think they're f- filled with great people and just very pragmatic. Like if you just think about it's pragmatism at both ends of the spe- spectrum to be able to say this app, OmniWeb, that is in some ways um, represents like the best web browser development that any company has ever made. We need to make it free because we can't support it and make a, a living off of it. I presume that's their reasoning. And then on the other end saying this app, OmniFocus on the Mac, let's see what's the, what's the price of OmniFocus on the Mac these days? Probably like $80, right? Right. If you get the basic, it's 40. And if you get the upgrade to the pro, it is 80. $80. And that, there's a pragmatism on both ends of that spectrum to be able to say, this needs to be free because it's not going to make us money. And this needs to be $80 because it is going to make us money. You know, right. like, let's be real about these two products that we have. The company that was famous for web browser technologies and PDF rendering apps. Nobody thinks about that company for the, for those things anymore. So when you got onto our Mars Edit, did you think then that you'd be where you are today? Did you think that this would still be in development? Did you were you interested in developing other things or did you really set out to craft something as long as it was relevant and had a loyal customer base? Uh, I definitely don't think I looked this far down the road. That's 9 years ago now. Th- those nine years are characterized. I would characterize those nine years as being filled with surprise that things have moved forward as slowly as they have. Mars Edit, like the Omni Group's apps, hasn't ch- changed a, a whole lot in those nine years. It, it's like it's been unmoved by the sea changes. Yeah. Things have changed on the Mac where everything got uh, a flatter design, got away from the skeuomorphism. Apple integrates more and more sync options, et cetera. And then there was a large crop of text editors that have come along because of iOS in response to cloud syncing and more blog platforms, everything from Ghost to Medium Mm -hmm. to microblogging with Tumblr and the like. So because of the growing number of people who want to write for the web, there have been, there's been the commoditization of the writing tools. You see cheaper and cheaper writing tools and they're cross-platform. Whereas your tool reminds me of, what was it called? Yojimbo? And oh, yeah. the, pre- mm-hmm. prede- yeah, the, the predecessor of Evernote. Yeah. And also it reminds me of Evernote. Like, I don't know if, those, or I, I guess Ujimbo may have been your contemporary, may have been made around the same time. I don't know. Mm-hmm, yeah. 
Okay, and it seems like a lot of the tools have borrowed inspiration from you, but they're they're definitely different. They're not the same as right because yours reminds me of the Mavericks days. It 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 is a a testament to something that still works from another era of the Mac. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I and I think there's a there's a there's obviously pluses and minuses to that. I mean, it, it's another thing where if I could snap my fingers and have um, a redesign of the app that looked newer, but didn't sacrifice usability and didn't, you know, it, it wasn't just looks, you know, designed for design's sake. Like Windows 10 or Windows Hater. <laughs> I'm not too familiar with those, but I, I can imagine that that's, that that's accurate. Uh, but, you know, just like uh, there's something to be said for not jumping on every trend, especially when you've got kind of an investment in in the the gradually refined interface you know and somebody will, will look at it and say that's ugly that looks old that looks blah 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 but um if you throw everything out and start over and just to make something look quote-unquote pretty then um you do run the risk of losing some of the the finessed stuff and so i'm pretty careful about that um so which is not to say i don't want to update the look of it and i have updated it over time it's kind of also another funny thing i do sometimes is to go back and look at the first version of Mars edit before I took over mm. and boy, it's like looking through a time capsule. It's, it, it is crazy. It is a crazy different app as much as it's the same. It's different. You know, it's, uh, I'm glad to be in the company of some other apps like this. Like speaking of Yojimbo from the same company, BB edit, it's like, it's almost like a meme to criticize BB edit for being like an app from the past. It is. Yes. And yet it's so reliable and exactly. It does exactly what it says it does. And it has some usability in it, you know? And there's plenty of people who still use text edit, which yeah. Apple has basically not changed in a decade. Right. And for good reason. It's just, it just works. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's something to be said for things that aren't flashy. And in fact, you know, you're a designer, so you know that there's all these, there's always these kind of trends and phases of design. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, to some extent, I think the quote unquote flat design is spectrum, you know, in the same area of the spectrum, but eventually you get back to a point where utilitarian design is what's in vogue again. Yes. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, I agree. Okay, well, here we are again. And, um, you know, at that point, it's kind of like, well, the only difference then between an app that's sort of designed to um, to be not flashy from 1990, and it is an app that's designed to be not flashy from 2016, are the choice of gradients and color scheme, you know, uh, and maybe type of typographical choices. Um, but a lot of that's just kind of like, well, do you, how much flash do you have in the design? And uh, I agree, there are things that, and there's things I see sometimes in my own apps where I say, ah. That just doesn't look like of our era. So I kind of agree in those cases. Try to swap them out for something that captures the same style, but in a more modern way. Well, weighing the pros and cons, I like to think of it with, with something that John Gruber once said, that design is sort of like swapping out a toupee. <laughs> and if it's really what it boils down to, which it often is, yeah. then what difference is it actually making? Right. As long as it makes a improvement for user friendliness, then go with the change. Yeah. And if it's not because the tool does 
work very well to date, then I don't think it needs to be given a redesign for flashy reasons. Right. Another example of this would be Scrivener, mm-hmm. a fantastic app that makes many very happy writers. Yeah. It just works when it also too feels like it's it belongs to the Mavericks era where it ended with the the death of skeuomorphism, but that app excels because of its skeuomorphism. Mm-hmm. I, you are one of the few developers that is mindful of the things that you said no to. Like a lot of people like to say that they're careful about what they say no to, and they laud the idea that they say no to a lot, and that helps them to be re- uh, productive. But I don't see them actually saying no to a lot of things. Mm. <laughs> and it seems like that is one of the things that has made Mars at what it is today, that no, you you stuck to your guns, and whether you questioned your decisions or not over the years, I don't know, but you chose to, th- this is the path I want to take for Mars Edit. No, it doesn't need a change in large part. Mm, I'm not ready to move over to iOS. And uh, I'm sure your users are thanking you for it. Yeah, I think to a great extent they are. I often get feedback from customers, even when they are um, sort of like painfully sometimes yearning for a new feature. They often make that request and they say, oh, I last asked you about this five years ago. Then I reminded you about it three years ago. (laughs) And now I'm just checking in to see, is there any chance this is going to (laughs) happen? And then they'll say, by the way, Mars Edit is totally rock solid. I use it every day. (laughs) You know, and it's like, (laughs) okay, thanks. And so you're right. There's a mixed, um, I think that that you you get a lot of... um, Positive inertia. Yeah. Well, you get a lot of forgiveness for the things that at least the people who are thoughtful about the impact software is having on their lives, you get a lot of forgiveness for all the good stuff they're enjoying Mm. every day. And yeah, it's frustrating. I know I'm a software user too. And there's almost nothing worse than a great piece of software that's missing something that seems obvious, right? Like it's easier to forgive a terrible piece of software because it's nowhere close to being perfect for you. (laughs) <laughs> um, but when there's something that's like, why didn't they just do this one thing? I appreciate that that's frustrating. But yeah, on reflection, usually I, I, I just think, wow, I'm really glad this is still around. And I think a lot of people do feel that way about, about Mars Edit. And I think you're right. It's because um, choices are not made willy-nilly, you know, not making... And it's, I, I wouldn't characterize it as saying no as much as I would characterize it as... Um, I have an idea that you just question the assumption that you had to keep up with the times. Because a lot of people would say, well, of course you're going to build the mobile app version. I mean, who wouldn't? Why not? Of course you are. I mean, right? Right. Uh, Shouldn't you question the idea of not building the mobile one? You know, (laughs) and and you were kind of like, no, I actually am just weighing my assumptions. I'm, I'm not going to assume that I build the mobile version. Yeah. And I actually put a lot of time into that groundwork for the mobile stuff and you know, you could go. You could go either way. It could have been a big mistake that I didn't follow through. It could have been that I would be um, sitting here saying, "Haha, I charge eighty dollars just like Omni," <laughs> and um, and you know everything's going great. Reincorporating as the Mars Group, <laughs> the Mars Group, right? <laughs> there are a lot of people though who, a lot of my developer friends who did follow through on iOS versions, they regret that to some extent. You know, because they regret the opportunity that they missed to put that time into making their Mac version better. And I don't know, it's, we'll have to talk again sometime because yeah, I think things are also shifting now with the iPad Pro 
raises a whole new set of questions about what the future of productive software is going to be. I'm not sure I would make the same um, calculation like today as I did 10 years ago. Um, Hmm. I'm hoping for some guidance from Apple and from and from the market over the next couple of years <laughs> because you know it's at a point right now where I think it's really really hard to guess with accuracy whether for example if you if you say like if you say like in 5 years will there be more people using iPads for word processing versus Mac I don't know what the answer to that is right we, yeah, we are on the tipping point because I think that writers have already invested in their MacBook hardware. And just because the iPad Pro is available today doesn't mean that people are ready for an upgrade. But there are the people who are ready for an upgrade and are making purchasing choices right now. And I have to wonder, are they making the leap? Because it's not just about the hardware, it's also about the software. Yep. And if you leave the comforts of your Mac you're not going to necessarily have the the pl- the exact same tools on the iPad no matter how good the display is or the keyboard is yep are you going to be able to I, I do believe that a lot of professionals get great work done on iPads and have since the first model i, I used the every generation of the iPad to date and i have got a lot of work done on them but i wonder how many people in the mainstream are ready to make that kind of decision and move in that direction and how that'll influence the pl- the apps like yours. Yeah. So yeah, I am very intrigued because like we mentioned before, Scrivener, I keep hearing there there is whisper in the wind that they're coming to iOS, but they've apparently had their struggles to make that transition as well. Yeah. And if they're coming to it now, you wonder sometimes when you get to the point that they announce and release the 12-inch iPad Pro, did the guys at Scrivener say, oh, dang. It's back, I go back, back to the, the drawing board. board. Right? <laughs> did yeah. that just happen? Well, it's a, it's a challenging world because it's moving so fast, but it's also a very exciting world, mm. you know, both as a developer and as a user. I think one thing that all developers I know share in sentiment is that we are just like overwhelmed by the amount of things to try to keep up with now. And um, <laughs> so that's something exciting though. It's something where it's like, well, you can't, you can't say there's nothing to do. That's for sure. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, thanks, Daniel. Great discussion. I do want to have you back in a few uh, months. We'll have you back and see where things are going with the iPad Pro's future. I might have an iPad Pro by then anyway, and we'll see what I'm using to write with. Yeah. Because I I'm, I take writing very seriously. <laughs> I'm a little bit too ridiculous about my keyboards. Mm-hmm. And I like to use my MacBook primarily for all my writing. And I just, I think that things could change when I introduce the iPad Pro to my selection. Where do you want people to find you and where do you want people to go if they want to check out Mars Edit and you online? To find my company, it's red-sweater.com. I couldn't get redsweater.com even in 1999. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Poor choice of company name. Uh, redsweater.com is uh, my, my workplace, bitsplitting.org, my tech blog, my main tech blog. I'm on Twitter at Daniel Punkass, and you can find a bunch of links to other things about me from uh, 
I don't even know where the center, we talked about this earlier. I don't even know where the central location is, but yeah, I'll get you started. That'll, that's a good start. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. This will end episode 51. If you'd like to retrieve the show notes and links, you'll find them at tectonic.fm slash 51. If you want to chat with us, the show is at tectonic.fm on Twitter. And like Daniel said, he is at Daniel Punkass. And I am at JCS Darnell. You can send feedback and questions by email to hello at tectonic.fm. I'm Joe Darnell. Thanks for listening to Tectonic. All right. I like how you have your, um, in the show notes, in the notes doc, you have tectonic number 051 with a long vision into the future for hundreds of episodes. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Well, the reason for it was when I started the show, I think it was most of the technology shows already to date were well into the 200 and 300 marks. And I was like, uh, what the hell? I'll just put this in there. Yeah, there you go. I, I had a movie review podcast for the year of 2012 and 13. Before that, I had a YouTube show in 2011 then yeah yeah there was a few other shows i had a hand in on youtube as well i i realized you get to 100 pretty fast yeah we went to we uh, in 2011 we started this movie review video content show in january and by the end of the year we had 72 videos mm. you know out of 52 weeks wow so yeah it, it it's not that hard to get to 100 yeah we are right now um, moved to a every other week schedule for the month of April and May because I have friends in podcasting and we've actually talked about it for a few years now that we wanted to simplify how we're putting the shows out. And my friend is a web developer. He really, really, really wants to build a podcast networking platform on craft. Mm. So we, we were like, yeah, okay, well, if you want to, and yeah, this is our hobby. We'll, we'll build a podcasting network thing. And we'll, we're trying to launch that at the end of May or June. Cool. Right now I'm really deep into designing the website, then passing it off to him to code. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, there was a question that popped in my mind. Hmm. Oh yeah. You mentioned a red sweater being hard to get for the domain. <laughs> yeah. What is, what is the real red sweater? Not the real. The what, real what is the other red sweater? <laughs> yeah. It's so what frustrating. It's, um, it's some, it's an artist who's, and now it's not even loading. Oh yeah, it is. Okay. If you go to it, you'll see it's an artist named Kira Green. It's not loading for me. It's not. No, it's not even her main um, website. It's just like an alias to her main website now. And I asked her about it over 15 years ago. And she was at that point already not using it. (laughs) She only kept it because she had email associated with it. Oh, okay. And I was like, I'll host your email. Can you just like give me that domain name and I'll forward anything, you know, (laughs) and just wasn't (laughs) interested. So I keep my eye on it. Um, I have like calendar alerts for whenever the, the, um, domain expirations are. Yeah. yeah. She should let it go. I know. It's just, it's frustrating to me that I haven't been able to get it. And I didn't realize when I started red sweater that it might be something I would actually make like my full-time business, you know? So didn't matter that much. 
when I was looking at Brad's sweater on Google, mm-hmm. for some reason, Kiera Knightley came up. I was like, what does this have to do with Red Sweater? And, it, you know, it naturally you go over to Google Images and it's like, oh, yeah, Kiara Knightley wore a red sweater one day. <laughs> Funny. I don't ever squat on domain names, but just the other day, I was watching a YouTube video for the Super Mario Maker games. I was curious because I wanted to see, like, what was involved. Because I played back in the 90s and 80s, um... And so here I was watching a YouTube video of Super Mario Maker, and it gets to the end of a course, and there's this pretty graphic animation that comes up on the screen when you beat a level in the game, and it says, course clear. And it does this at the end of every level in the game. And it occurred to me, I was like, huh, I wonder what courseclear.com is. Mm. And I look it up, and it's not taken. (laughs) And I was like, ah, <laughs> I, then I told a couple of friends, I was like, hey, you guys, uh, y'all have talked about doing some, something pertaining to video games. Y'all ought to buy it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we ought to. <laughs> <laughs> and then they didn't do anything. Oh. So, so I was finally like, ah, oh, I got to buy it. I cannot not buy it. <laughs> so I bought it. I don't know what I'm going to do with yeah. it. Yeah. Well, it's, well, it's funny it's when there. you come across something like that, like a phrase that somebody has just not picked up on for some reason. Yeah, because it's the kind of name that just like Red Sweater, I would have figured somebody would have already taken. And then I would have had to get the dashed version. <clears throat> right. So. All right. Thank you, Daniel. All right.